Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. The last 18 months have certainly been dominated by COVID-19. So today I thought we would look at some interesting studies that have been published recently, looking at COVID outcomes with respect to lifestyle factors such as diet and exercise. Now, from the outside, outset, I want to be very clear. The public advice is uh, unequivocal on COVID-19. The best measure to protect yourself and others to first-time exposure to COVID-19 is vaccination. None of the things that we'll be talking about today should be considered an alternative to that public advice. And the ACA have been very clear that they support the government's non-mandatory approach to vaccination. But today we're looking at something a little bit more broadly. Most people who are exposed to COVID-19 will be asymptomatic or have only mild symptoms. Some young, seemingly healthy people may experience very severe symptoms. But on the whole, we know that older people, immune compromised and those with comorbidities are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. And I'm looking forward to unpacking that just a little today. To discuss these studies with me, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter McGlynn in Notty's first visit to the ACA podcast. Now, Peter is a registered chiropractor currently practicing in Melbourne. He has a master's in public health and a PhD in global public health and nutrition. He's a research affiliate at the Monash University School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine. He's a certified by the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine and is a fellow of the Australian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Peter is also the chair of the Wellbeing and Lifestyle Management Clinical Practice Group with the ACA-funded Australasian Institute of Chiropractic Education. Hi, Peter, and welcome back to the ACA podcast. Thank you, Anthony. Great to be here. So I thought to start with, let's, let's maybe go through what are some of the, the key risk factors for COVID-19? Okay, so we will be seeing many clients in our um, practices, which largely present with neuromusculoskeletal conditions. But as we all know, they often present with other comorbidities and um, modifiable and unmodifiable factors that are key risk factors for contraction and um, severe outcomes in COVID-19. And we've probably been exposed to those largely already, but just to to recap, age is a very big risk factor. The older people are, the bigger um, the risk for COVID-19. And if someone's over 75, they have almost three times the uh, odds of severe outcomes and five times the odds for death than someone who is younger. Males are more at risk. Um, Low socioeconomic status, which often intersects with ethnicity, um, is also a very big risk. And disability, especially Down syndrome, is a very big risk. When it comes to modifiable risk factors, it's multiple comorbidities that is the greatest risk factor and almost 17 times the odds of getting severe COVID with multiple comorbidities, including diabetes, obesity and cardiovascular disease. We're going to talk about physical activity in a moment, but you're two and a half times more likely to be hospitalised if you're physically inactive. 
If you're obese, you're twice as likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19 and similar rates for diabetes and smoking, almost twice the risk. So there are things that we need to be identifying in our clients if we actually assess the risk for our clients and give them the advice which may be able to assist them. So let's go into these studies and we'll talk about the first one. This is from um, the British Medical Journal, Nutrition, Prevention and Health. Um, and it looks at uh, plant-based and uh, pescatarian diets and, and COVID outcomes. Tell us about this study. Well, this was a study um, investigating the association between dietary patterns and the infection and severity and duration of COVID-19. And it was a population-based case control study of almost 3,000 healthy frontline health workers from Europe and the USA who were all working in a hospital setting and so were considered at high risk of frequent exposure to COVID-19 patients. And I understand, so this was the period from July through to September 2020. Um, this was a time when uh, tests for COVID uh, were actually limited. So not all the people included in this study were confirmed by PCR or antibody tests, some of them were just confirmed based on symptoms. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes, this was at the time that routine testing by PCR was not universal. Um, but the health workers were regularly exposed to patients who were either in emergency departments, critical care wards. Uh, they had some had self-reported COVID-19 symptoms um, or had received a confirmed PCR test. So it was PCR testing plus self-reporting of symptoms. Right. And so these are physicians and nurses who are dealing day-to-day -day in close contact, but obviously with um, some PPR equipment. Um, how did they sort of measure the outcomes? This was via a questionnaire, I understand. That's right. So <clears throat> the almost 3,000 participants all responded to a questionnaire reporting on whether they followed any specific dietary pattern in the preceding 12 months. They, on the questionnaire, they had 11 choices, <clears throat> including whole foods, plant-based, keto, vegetarian, Mediterranean diet, pescatarian, paleo, low fat, low carb, high protein, other or none of the above. So because of that very disparate group of diets, common characteristics were found within each of the diets and they were combined into three categories of shared characteristics for analysis. And so they came up with the three categories, plant-based diets, um, plant-based diets plus pescatarian, so including some animal protein, and then last one, low-carb slash high-protein diets. Okay, so uh, sorry, go ahead. So after they actually divided those um, 11 diets into three categories, they then um, asked the questions about the severity and duration of disease, um, COVID disease, based on five options from very mild to critical. And then duration was assessed by the number of days of any symptoms to recovery and then divided into two groups, those greater than 14 days of symptoms versus those with less than 14 days of symptoms. Okay, drum roll, what was the results? Well, of those um, 3,000 or 2,800 um, healthcare workers, 568 of them went on to develop COVID-19 as um, diagnosed by PCR tests and self-reporting of symptoms. And so of those 568, 43 of them had very mild 
um, severity of COVID-19 and 130 had moderate to severe severity. So there were 2,316 controls who produced a negative PCR test and they had no experience of any symptoms associated with COVID-19. So they also controlled for um, many of the demographic characteristic, age, sex, race, and ethnicity, what medical specialty they worked in, their medical history, their smoking status, their BMI, and that did not affect the severity of COVID-19 in any way. And so the uh, a comparison of the, of the people who had the vegetarian plant or plant-based rather diets uh, versus pescatarian versus the low carbohydrate and high protein? What, how did they all compare? So there were, there were three comparisons. First of all, those following a plant-based diet had 73% lower odds of moderate to severe COVID-19 compared to those who didn't follow a plant-based diet. Wow. And secondly, the ones who followed a plant-based slash pescatarian diet, they had a 59% and lower odds moderate to severe COVID-19 compared to those who didn't follow that diet. And thirdly, those following the low-carb, high-protein diets had a 48% increase in odds for moderate to severe COVID-19 compared to those who didn't follow the low-carb, high-protein diet. So in summary, the moderate to severe cases were much more likely to report low-carb, high-protein diets than those with mild disease. The best outcomes were from plant-based. The second best outcomes were from plant-based slash pescatarian, and they both reduced the odds of COVID-19 severe outcomes. So I guess it's um, you know fairly clear, at least from this study, and it is only one study, of course, but uh, it looks like plant-based diets are the way to go. This is adding to a very kind of big raft of evidence, not only in the prevention of COVID-19 and the, those outcomes, but in the um, management and prevention of chronic disease in many different factors. Cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, cancer, a whole lot of things are pointing towards plant-based diets. And not to mention that the environment uh, tends to do a little bit better when we shift away from uh, a heavy meat diet as well. So um, plus plus there. L let's talk about the exercise uh, now. And this is um, comes from a study from the British Medical Journal of Sports Medicine. It looked at physical activity and COVID outcomes and a rather large sample size here. This was a very big study, as you said. Um, it was a retrospective observational study involving 48,000 or over 48,000 health plan members from uh, Southern California. And it was published in April this year. And they were looking at um, the self-reported levels of physical activity and the effect on the severity of COVID-19 infection in hospitalized adults. So all these participants were actually members of a health plan. So they had um, all of their physical activity recorded um, automatically over the previous two years. So there was a database already before they contracted COVID-19. Well, that's a pretty good database to tap into. So, so what would they group these into three groups, as I understand, inactivity or inactive, some activity and, and consistently meeting the guidelines? What, what did that mean? What did they have to do to achieve that? Well, this is something that we can all do as chiropractors in our offices. This is one of the ways of assessing um, physical activity and physical inactivity in all of our people. Um, what happened was um, the... Um, 
two simple questions were asked of each person. On average, how many days a week do you engage in moderate to strenuous exercise, like a brisk walk? And on average, how many minutes do you engage in exercise at this level? So what we want from um, the exercise vital sign is to work out how many minimum or the minimum of minutes per week they're exercising. And the recommended guidelines advise a minimum of 150 minutes per week of moderate to strenuous exercise. So basically half an hour for five days a week and we satisfy those requirements. So there were three categories, as you said, there were a group who did no activity at all and were considered consistently inactive. There were another group that did some activity between 11 minutes and 149 minutes per week. And the group that satisfied the regular recommended guidelines of 150 um, minutes per week. So in this study, they were looking at comparing the different levels of exercise uh, to those who, uh, th these are all people, of course, who had COVID-19 uh, and to what their levels of hospitalization, ICU admission or death from COVID-19 were. Um, how did these results stack up? Yeah, that's true. As, as um, according to their exercise level, 6.4% of those people who were hospitalized were meeting physical activity recommendations of 150 minutes per week and 14.4% were consistently inactive with the remainder being in between. So a small percentage, 6% were following the guidelines, 14% were doing nothing at all, and the rest in between. So the results were that those meeting the recommended guidelines for physical activity had reduced odds for hospitalization, um, ICU admission, and death from COVID-19. Being constantly inactive resulted in a significantly higher odds for hospitalization, which was two and a half times, 2.2 times um, the odds. For ICU admission, um, they were 1.7 times more likely to um, be in ICU, but interestingly, they were 2.5 times more likely to die from COVID-19 by being completely inactive compared uh, to those who were consistently meeting the recommended 150 minutes. And I guess when we think about this as chiropractors, we're not particularly surprised by these results, are we? You know, who would have known that a plant-based diet and a regular exercise can improve your well-being, and uh, and that extrapolates into better outcomes from an infection such as COVID-19. But I guess this data is still, you know, very important and indeed compelling. Absolutely, because this is our space. I mean, if health is our focus, then these are the things we need to be discussing. These are the things we need to be measuring and assessing because otherwise a lot of people will be coming through our offices and slipping through our fingers and we have great opportunity to be actual to be able to not only prevent COVID-19 and better outcomes there but influence chronic disease of all the people that come to, to our offices. It's just a matter of getting the systems in place to systematically assess, measure and manage lifestyle factors which can influence health. Just a question. Um... I guess it's a little off center here, but I would imagine when we look at this study, you, the immediate thing you jump to is it would say, okay, exercise, that's good, better at COVID outcomes. I'm wondering, people who have comorbidities are less likely to exercise, I would say generally. Um, and I guess there's that vicious cycle where, you know, someone exercises less, therefore they develop a chronic disease, they have a chronic disease, so therefore they're less likely to, um, to exercise. Is it difficult to point 
uh, I, I guess the, the the solution here or the answer here to say, look, it's definitely exercise, or maybe there were there was a reason that they weren't exercising. Was it because they had a comorbidity ultimately that was the factor rather than the actual exercise that they did? I know that's probably a confusing question. I, I'm barely understanding it myself, but do you get to where I'm going there? I do. I understand what you're saying. And, and in the design of this study, it was it's a very well-designed study and comorbidities, comorbidities and social demographics, BMI and other lifestyle factors were controlled for during the analysis. So it is clear in this study that physical activity was an independent risk factor for poor outcomes of COVID-19. So disregarding everything else. There you go. And another point in that that you mentioned before, any physical activity is better than none at all. Yes. And so if you have comorbidities or disability or pregnancy, there is a clear dose response. So you start small and as you are able to do more within your limitations, the benefit increases, at least as far as the 150 minutes per week goes. You go further than that and the benefit, uh, increase of benefit becomes plateaued but definitely it's maximized at 150 minutes per week i know it's a conversation i'm often having with my patients about their exercise and i think it's been uh, really relevant during these lockdown periods in australia where people have become a little bit depressed they're less motivated so they find it hard to sort of um, get their mojo happening get out there and exercise and a thing that i sort of suggest to them and i find this works for my patients it works for me is that Every day, just try and do a tiny bit, even if it's a whole lot less than you usually used to do. Every little bit does count. And every little bit that you do, I think, adds to your motivation to then get up and do something again the next day. If you've done, you know, even if it's just five or 10 minutes of something, it's easier to go from that and do something that's a little bit more rather than just saying, oh, I'm just going to do nothing today. Has that been your experience with patients also? Absolutely. And that's been studied and measured and exactly what you said is correct. Um, it's measurable both from physical outcomes and mental health outcomes as well. Start small, do what you feel like doing. Anything is better than nothing. All right, let's go on and talk, talk about supplementation now. Is there any evidence that um, supplements can influence COVID outcomes or indeed help people with any form of uh, acute respiratory disease? There is, and um, I just came across this study recently and it's an app-based community survey published in the BMJ Nutrition and uh, this was published in March this year and it reported the association between self-reported regular dietary supplementation and COVID-19 infection confirmed by PCR tests and the sample size was 372,720 people so a really big sample taken in the US, the UK and Sweden. And what it showed was um, that there was a moderately lower risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, which causing COVID-19. It was only seen in women for some reason, not in men. It wasn't statistically living in men. Numbers of, um, to show the benefit were people taking probiotics were 14% less likely to contract SARS-CoV-2. People were taking multivitamins were 13% less likely. Omega-3 fatty acids were 12% less likely. Vitamin D was 9% less likely. But there was no effect seen for any participants taking vitamin C, zinc, or garlic, and right. none in men as well. And I so guess a little bit confusing, but that was what the evidence said. 
again, that question would be asked that is the person who's taking supplements more likely to have a positive outlook on life, more likely to exercise, less likely to have comorbidities? Uh, was that, were those kind of factors uh, considered in the study? Yeah, there was a, a almost a 50-50 split for cases and controls, those who took uh, supplements versus those who didn't, didn't, and they controlled for those factors. So right. it did point to a real benefit for those um, supplements. But when you compare it to a 70% drop in COVID-19 severe outcomes from a plant-based diet, yes. a 14% drop from probiotics, it's, it's no comparison to the benefit yep. that we see yep. um, in the change of diet. Start with a healthy diet first up. Now, I want to talk as chiropractors, obviously, we're seeing people with neuromuscular um, type presentations all the time. Um, what, if any, evidence is there that um, adjusting the spine, improving their uh, muscular, neuromusculoskeletal function has any uh, impact on immune function? Well, we all know as chiropractors that our primary tool is adjusting the spine in various and many ways. And that shows very good evidence for improved health outcomes uh, in terms of uh, physical activity, pain control, and the management of many neuromusculoskeletal conditions. Since the start of the pandemic, there's been five publications on um, the effects of spinal manipulative therapy on immune enhancement, because obviously people are finding any way they can to improve immune function, especially before vaccination became available. And the ICA produced a, a paper, the World Federation of Chiropractic produced a paper, clinical practice guidelines by Cheryl Hawke and 65 chiropractors um, in the US and a couple of really good um, publications in um, JAMA. <clears throat> and at this point, no definitive clinical evidence supports a protective effect of spinal manipulation alone on the immune system function or infectious disease prophylaxis. But, Remember, the lack of evidence doesn't necessarily mean lack of benefit, but if we're going to investigate spinal manipulative therapy on the immune function, we need to test this hypothesis and use robust clinical research. And whatever the evidence tells us, we need to be also prepared to adapt our model accordingly based on new and emerging evidence. But at the moment, there has been no definitive clinical evidence for a benefit of chiropractic adjusting on immune system function. Often when I have this conversation with patients, um, and as we've already outlined in, in our chat, you know, clearly nutrition and exercise, and uh, we haven't talked too much about um, mental health, but these are the sort of things that we know do have an impact on um, immune function. And I guess the conversation that I have with patients is more about, let's get you your, your spine working. Let's get your neuromusculoskeletal health switched on so that you can exercise more, you can move your body better. And quite often, and I know, and I know this is what all chiropractors must be noticing, particularly with their chronic pain type patients, that when people start to feel better, they start to do better things. Uh, they start to make better health choices. And I think that would be, um, that's, I guess, a, a good segue to have those conversations with, with patients about encouraging them to do those things that are important for, for their lifestyle and important for their well-being, And I think that's definitely an area where we can have an influence. Absolutely. We all know as chiropractors, the um, effect we have on patients' mobility and pain syndromes and their quality of life because of the product that we deliver. And it's such a good, effective product. But when it comes to immune system 
response. At the moment, the evidence points towards lifestyle modification as the um, way to improve immunity. Um, and there's little to no evidence at the moment on spinal manipulative therapy and immune function, but that doesn't mean we don't have a, a role to play in this space because as primary health care practitioners, um, we are seeing these patients and we need to know how to deal with them. Fantastic. Uh, for all everyone listening, we will make uh, those key studies available to you. So um, when you receive the email with the link to this podcast, there'll be a link to the studies as well if you want to do a bit of a deeper dive in. Pete, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really terrific chat and I think we've covered a whole lot of stuff there. Thanks, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm -hmm.